0: Broadcasting live from Young Sheldon in Venice, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett Strother.
1: And I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly.
0: Wow, I, you know, you turned the other mustachioed cheek, Seamus, and did not Poirot voice me back this week.
1: Well, I'm, I'm trying to make this episode specifically quite possibly the greatest podcast episode in the world so he did it (laughs) ladies and gentlemen he did it (laughs) the twist the twist oh god well if that wasn't an absolute dead giveaway today we are finally we're rounding out the poirot trilogy with kenneth branagh's a haunting in venice and i am surprisingly excited to to get into this main segment today with you garrett and we don't have a lot of news to get through
0: beforehand so let's Steamroll right on through as we hit, of course, our weekly WGA and SAGA After a strike update. The WGA and the AMPTP have issued a very rare joint statement on September 20th, where they mentioned that they had been negotiating on that day and would continue negotiating the next. It seems that in notable media publications, the AMPTP is pushing that this is big progress, though... Nothing has really come officially from the WGA denoting that and probably won't until a minute after these negotiations have ceased.
1: Yeah, I am I am hoping, I guess is the best way to say that. I, there's been a few points during this strike that we have gotten a little bit of false hope, I, I would say. There's been some times where the rug has been pulled... I will say that this is at least a little more encouraging than the last time that they were negotiating and just kind of backwards reverse negotiated the exact same deal that they laid down before. So at the, at the very least, this feels uh, in, uh, in a more neutral place and isn't just to the complete detriment of the the people who are on strike right now. And
0: of course, the WGA coming back and finishing their strike wouldn't really mean a lot. It would mean the development would be more active, but it wouldn't resume Hollywood as business as usual because, of course, SAG-AFTRA is still on strike. So we would probably see the return of some daytime TV shows. I'm looking at you,
1: Drew Barrymore. I know how (laughs) eager you are to get back on the air. Uh, I, I almost feel like she had some somebody tell her, like, it'll be over soon, it's fine, just do it. And then she just absolutely wrecked herself.
0: Uncle Spielboy was like, hey, maybe let's, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah, let's not.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Big old fingers crossed that this is actually going the way that the AMPTP seems to be gesturing that it is, but I'm not going to hold my breath.
1: Same here, same here.
0: Seamus, I think you know what time it is. It is time
1: for a Disney danger. That's <laughs> the alarm. And they are coming with more price-raising on streaming services. Can you imagine that? Isn't that so surprising? (laughs) In an era where, for the foreseeable
0: future, there will be no new film or television on streaming services, Hulu is going up to $17.99 a month for ad-free. And Disney Plus is going to 13.99 a month. So Disney Plus has doubled in price since it launched.
1: Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And I know pretty much every time we have a Disney danger involving how Disney Plus has evolved as a streaming service in this, in these last few years, I feel like we're always like, but they have so much stuff. There's so much classics. It's very much worth it. But like, they, that is a lot of money a month, man. And I, I mean, with Hulu and Disney Plus, which are, I would say, fairly essential streaming services, like that's. That's a ton of money.
0: Well, where else are you going to watch the Toy Story football game, Seamus?
1: The Toy Story football game? Did you not hear about this? What is this? They're doing
0: a live simulcast of, I can't remember what the game is, but it is a NFL game where you can stream it on Disney Plus, and it's Toy Story 5, like it's in Andy's room.
1: What? it's like a real, it's going to be broadcast like a real football game, but it's going to be
0: like- It is a real football game. Like there, you can go onto Fox and watch the football game, or you can watch it on Disney Plus where it, or ESPN Plus, I think, where it is Toy Story 5. Now, I don't know what that's actually going to look like. If it's just like Buzz and Woody are sitting on the bed watching TV where the game is playing, or if it's going to be like, no, there's little toy football guys, and they're on Whoa. the floor in Andy's room.
1: That is crazy. I am gonna watch that. That's that's the <laughs> most fun thing I've ever heard. Oh wait, we're no, sure. they're pulling me They're pulling me back in, Garrett. You just took we're the hitting the
0: random crap button in the <laughs> st- this stage of the writer's strike. This happened in 2008 too. Don't forget, there was all that weird stuff in 2008 that came out from the writer's strike. <laughs> This Maybe so for next novelty, week's bro. reference, we should compile a list of all of the weird,
1: like, oh, yeah, trial that stuff be, that came out in that period. That would be absolutely great. That would be a blast from the past in a bad way.
0: But, yeah, this is, I mean, I I think I would get Disney through our phone plan or something. and I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. If
1: you can get some kind of student discount on these, go for it. I mean, this isn't our re-re-battle of the streaming services or anything, but, like, that is an insanely... Like, we're gonna... Whenever we come back around on that streaming services and however many episodes, that's... God knows what the price on these are gonna be by then.
0: But if there's one thing that's scarier than those price hikes, it is little girls singing <laughs> in, a, in a haunted old orphanage. So I think that we need to go ahead and... Take a trip to the Mediterranean if you can believe that, Shamus.
1: (laughs) Ah, right back to Venice.
0: For today's main segment, we are going to be talking about the new Hercule Poirot adventure, A Haunting in Venice. This is the third of these movies. Last week, we just did Death on the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express. And Seamus, I think you're going to agree with me when I say that this is by far the one I enjoyed the most of, oh, his, yeah. of his three movies. They keep getting better.
1: They, they straight up do. And I mean, we had plenty of problems with Death on the Nile, I think. But it's just it's been a like one of the most impressive investments in a Franchise? How do I want to say that? Like, getting into this franchise super late in the game, I'm out of the big, long string of sequels game, unless it's Star Wars, basically. But if they made a million of these movies that got better at the rate that these three have, it would be endless entertainment. Because this third one here is the most genre-heavy thing that they were going for. The other two, they were just more general Mediterranean mysteries. That's what this franchise could have been called, truly. But this one was like it was like actually scary I I mean you were jumping I was jumping it was it was vi- done incredibly well there's it was such a dark movie but not in like an annoying way like visually dark because there's just so much fire light and low orange lighting it, it was just it was just great this is a
0: movie that knows how to shoot darkness in a way that most films do not which makes sense because Kenneth Branagh again has a very mm. old school old Hollywood sensibility to the way he shoots his films and and there's a lot of darkness in this movie. There's a lot of creepy corners and outside night shots that in most other Hollywood studio movies would be illegible, but you can clearly see everything that happens in this movie, and it is a beautiful-looking movie. I think it is in a roster of beautiful-looking movies in the running for the best-looking of the three Oh, yeah. Even more impressive because he shot it on digital and not 65 millimeter like the other two.
1: That rascal, that makes no damn sense to me because I was going to say this one it's absolutely visually gorgeous because I get so taken out of the other two with those big sweeping clearly CGI exterior shots that the other two kind of have to rely on for the kind of setting that they're in but this one is so interior and so claustrophobic stuck in a Venetian piazza in the middle of Halloween night during a thunderstorm it's just such a different kind of vibe Vibe for one of these mysteries, and you really never also see Poirot so panicked. I feel like like he is—he's really get—he's getting put through it in this one for sure, as as opposed to the other ones. He's sometimes confused and let on, but he's always kind of in control of the situation. You
0: mentioned in our Orient Express discussion that you feel like the approach to Orient Express is something that would have made maybe made more sense to reserve for a sequel to reserve for some kind of revelatory chapter of Poirot's ongoing adventures and this does a really good job of setting stakes higher than the others. It does feel like a genuine risk, a genuine jump in quality and stakes from the other two films. And I think that that also helps it along. And in turn is helped along by the fact that it is, like you said,
1: genuinely frightening. And I mean, I... I don't love when a horror movie is over reliant on like very you know, very jump scare heavy horror movies I feel like are a little cheap, but because this movie wasn't really a I don't know if I could call it a horror movie proper. I don't know if, if you would agree with it's, that. It's but, more spooky, I'd say. It's like, yeah, I mean it's definitely spooky, but there are like it has more elements. Actual... Oh, yeah. The, oh, it's got horror elements, Garrett. Yeah, it does. But I mean, just like in the fact that a, a regular like a thriller or a mystery or something, even if it's just the vibes of being spooky, doesn't have the imagery and the jump scares that are clearly in the vein of like a like a real classic horror film.
0: I think that I'm glad that after a certain point, they rely less on jump scares, which I appreciate. <laughs>
1: I did as well.
0: That they go they they go they're ambiance heavy right at the beginning. And then jump scare, jump scare, jump scare, jump scare when things get scary. And then they go back to atmosphere. And they really are just kind of like letting you luxuriate in how creepy things are. Mm-hmm. I would also say that it has more in common with something like, if you were to call it a horror movie, which I am not ready to do, it has much more in common with something like an old 50s Vincent Price movie than anything that's made today. Yes. And I think that's probably the best analogy to go into trying to classify it with, is to say it feels like a classier, more artfully craftily made version of one of those old vincent price haunted house movies
1: i think that's an incredible comparison it's it's like it's I'm I'm so glad it came out in this time of the year because it really does feel like a great way to usher in kind of like the more Halloween heavy stuff that we're definitely gonna just naturally gravitate towards during during fall. Because again, it wasn't a real horror movie. I wasn't like holding your hand in the theater, like really chattering my teeth or anything. I mean, no more than usual. But there I
0: mean... were I was gonna say there were a couple of scenes where we both kind of <laughs> leaped in and we were like, I don't like this very much.
1: <laughs> our our tandem. Uh, jumping at jump scares, those damn seagulls in St. Mark's Square that actually commit murder on a daily basis out there. It is it is great.
0: I'll say this. I think it's scarier than the last two Halloween movies.
1: Yeah, I I, I give you that. Because C- there's, again, the uh, new Halloween movies are such a weird thing because they truly, the mystery isn't in the character anymore. It's like, how are these filmmakers even going to do something like this again? But this was like, again, being very unfamiliar with... Agatha Christie's books and Hercule Poirot is a character. I thought this was an incredibly compelling mystery. Even though, I mean, I I did latch on to the to the big clue when it happened, and I I kind of figured it out as as we went along there. Seamus, Seamus, Seamus. Ah, uh, quite possibly the greatest uh, detective in the world over here.
0: I saw you flip your fedora brim backwards as you got halfway through that sentence, like Bruce Campbell in The Hunsucker Proxy, or an era-appropriate reference that is what that movie is also referencing. I
1: I was miming, like cleaning an apple on my shirt and taking a bite out of it in the streets uh but you know it's a similar vibe like a newsie like like a newsie like a
0: newsie also to this movie's credit it is not taking pleasure in some of the same things in a you already mentioned like the sweeping landscape shots and things like that but it's actively bypassing some traits that the first two movies relied on some more heavily than others most specifically the giant a-list cast it's not that there aren't plenty of a-listers academy award winner michelle yo tina fey 50 shades of gray guy they're all here <laughs> but the focus is not so much on look at all these movie stars that kenneth branagh wanted to hang out with i would say this movie for a movie of its budget and studio placements its its calendar release date has an average number of A-list stars in it compared to other movies. It's certainly not the, like, wow, everybody in this movie is super famous the way that the first two are, which, again, shows how much stronger this one is when it's not relying on something like that.
1: Yeah, and now maybe with... A little success on the tail end of this, you know, trilogy that they have here. I mean, they really could just let it go as it is. How this one ended, I would say, a little am- ambiguous on the future of things. But well, I'm, we'll get we'll get into it in spoilers. Yes, of course we will. I'm. You can hear me dancing around what I'm trying to say here. Curtain. You want to just call it let's call it i there are, there's a lot of fun stuff that i would like to get into spoilery stuff with you all right well then official
0: spoilers for a haunting in venice and also by extension murder on the Orient express and uh death on the nile just because we'll probably compare and mm-hmm. contrast a little bit so like you were just about to say Foiro is back at the end of this movie yeah. shamus
1: uh, we skip over a couple very important years in European history, and we're in Italy on the other side of it. And he, Poirot's retired. He gets he gets two deliveries from the pastry man. every day. He's got a very dedicated Italian bodyguard. I kind of I kind of love that life for him. You know, he seems very content in his little his little gardening life. I, well, Tina Fey has
0: a line to the effect of "This is happiness, not fulfillment, or something mm. like oh, that." That
1: is that is true. Which
0: I. think... I think it's fair. I think Poirot is a restless mind, and they do dig into that element of his psyche a little bit more in this movie. We get even a little bit more about Poirot's dead, dead wife! wife.
1: <laughs> I mean, I... I... I guess that's... I feel like all of these movies have had that as kind of a theme. Even in Murder on the Orient Express, he's just, like, going home after a different crime. And he gets, you know, thrown... Like, various people are always just like, this is what you do, Poirot. Do your thing. Including old-timey 1940s Tina Fey, who I really loved in this, even though it really sounded like Liz Lemon was doing a bit with that voice for the whole movie. I think it's really
0: nice to see her in this kind of role where, because usually she's so reliant on her Liz Lemony y shtick of like, oh, like, sure, I'm technically confident and capable, but I, th- like, I underestimate myself. And I think it's cool to see Tina Fey in a more fulfilled role, a more self-fulfilled role
1: and just, like, even, like, letting her dress nice is something that I'm not used to seeing (laughs) her do. And, I mean... It is a little strange that it's like an Agatha Christie self-insert, which I didn't know was a thing in those books. I don't know if that's in the books or not, but like a a lady fiction novelist that writes about a European detective with a big mustache. Hmm. I mean, there are, we never
0: learned the name of her fake detective. I don't think it's always just, I wrote Poirot, but fiction, and that's yeah. how they describe it. So yeah, that is a very interesting thing, especially because that character is not particularly flattering. I would say she's actually, aside from the actual criminal's maybe the person that comes off the worst in this movie
1: honestly my heart broke a little bit when reveals were being made in the in the third act because I Tina Fey fills that book role of just like I am your companion along for a mystery and I am maybe one of the only people that knows you personally enough to know that you're like how you function and like how you're gonna do this mystery and I'm gonna you know say a one-off sentence and you're gonna be like say and then you're gonna get a clue and that's gonna piece some stuff together but then she is part of the bad guys kind of i mean not like the bad bad guys but like she's a bad guy good god apple (laughs) oh the whole apple thing was that uh there's so many hallucinations baked into the dna of this movie. i would say that probably my one
0: real gripe with this movie is that it not only redoes the Poirot's poison thing from Death on the Nile, but that they aren't quite as ambiguous as I would have liked with how much of it is the hallucinations. The most we get is the imagery at the end of Kelly Riley's character, who ended up being the murderer, getting ripped off the balcony by the ghost of her dead daughter, who she inadvertently killed. And I don't think that that is, you know, I mean, that's interesting enough, but it's a lot more symbolic, I think, Mm -hmm. than it is like, Oh, but isn't this super creepy and maybe real? They mostly are like, "Nah, poor O's right. There's no ghosts." Yeah, it's I j-
1: wanted him to be a little unsure at the end. Not even like super duper unsure, but just enough, you know, just a little bit. Well, they give it to us. They give it. They give. They
0: try to give it to us when Tina Fey comes up to him and she's like. You got the edge of a believer now, see? Uh. And <laughs> she bites into an apple. <laughs> well, she does love her apples. Two, it was it two apples a day until dinner or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: nothing but two apples a day until supper. Oh, huh? see.
0: And they needed to spend more time in the dead child basement. I think that that is the thing that would have sealed that a little bit more for me, and also maybe left one element of the mystery that Poro was like,
1: "I'm actually not sure." <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like, I mean, with that reveal of the child corpse basement, truly I did, like, open my mouth in reaction so wide that the entire left side of my jaw locked up for like 30 seconds I, I like really had to fight that one back because it was the most shocking thing that I never expected to see in that movie was the rotting larva and honeybee filled corpse of an abandoned orphan child in the flooded basement of a piazza that's a lot even for these movies there's like you know very theatrical you know I'm gonna shoot both of us through the chest with one bullet and there's gonna be like a dramatic red spot but this was like a truly a rotting corpse
0: and they just leave they there's okay Never well go back. The w- we saw the, the, all the honeybees down in the basement. Guess we had that mystery solved. And I was like, no, dude, maybe stay, like, you know... I would have... Again, I would have liked to have given them a reason to stay down there more, maybe, if the murderer locked them downstairs. And also, in this one, they got a little bit more leeway because this is the first one that's not explicitly named after a specific mm-hmm. Poirot story. It is heavily based on the Christie Poirot story Halloween party, but... I feel like they had a lot more creative license here to make up their own stuff. Now I have technically, I've read more of it than I've read Death. I've never read any of Death on Nile. I've Mm. had, I have read excerpts of Halloween Party in a class once, but it was over ten years ago, so I really don't remember how well this shapes up compared to the story in terms of how faithful it is. But I would, you know, they could have, they could have been locked down in the child. Murder basement, they probably could've. for a little longer or something. They,
1: they do such work about like setting the stage at the orphans Halloween party thing where they're like, this is a whole deal. Everyone knows about this thing. There's never been, like, proof or whatever, apparently, because no one's ever found the all the, like, children's dolls in the basement or whatever. I And then they also, they just- Oh, that's kinda, really creepy. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, the pile of children's toys or whatever, and they all just leave at the end, right? There's not, like, a cop there or anything to no. deal with the child murder basement slash- A woman drowning in the canals and stuff. Tina Fey's like,
0: well, I guess we know that story's not true. No haunting in there. And I'm like, girl,
1: (laughs) where were you? Yeah, man, there was some stuff. There was a few things. Because, like, there's a couple things in... not even talked about Michelle Yeoh being a spiritual medium who's, like, flipping out in the first scene that they're in, doing the whole seance. Uh, there's, like, they they debunk the typewriter, but did they ever debunk Michelle Yeoh speaking in the daughter's voice? I don't, like, what was that all about? Yeah, I do like that
0: they don't really, but the, again, they, they kind of draw, it's less that they explicitly
1: acknowledge that poro is unable to produce a explanation for that they just kind of drop it and move on because they yeah explain the typewriter they explain like tina fey was in on the painting no somebody pulled like a, a ring with a string on it and something fell she, over she uh, she, uh, she grabbed brought the, the drapes doll. in
0: the window open
1: they, they were all doing this stuff but then yeah they just like don't even they like hope you forget that Michelle Yo can speak clearly in this dead girl's voice.
0: And I guess to to argue the other way, they could have put in a line where she was
1: a ventriloquist or I mean, something. Even something like
0: that. I don't know. But I do I, I like that it's ambiguous. I don't like that they don't they don't dwell on it being ambiguous enough would be my my note there but i mean she's having a lot of fun in this movie she gets a she gets a very theatrical entrance oh which... yeah
1: oh with the ma- the masquerade mask and the just i guess everybody gets a pretty dramatic uh, everybody gets their own gondola to the halloween party where he's standing on it like the titanic or whatever but i mean i don't know i thought she was great i'm sad that she was the one who gets murdered fairly early but i mean i guess that could have been seen coming i suppose
0: I mean, I I went into this movie assuming Michelle Yeoh was going to be the murder victim, but it's pretty wild that they straight up impale her on a big statue. Yeah. That's maybe the gnarliest way anybody in any of these movies goes out, if I'm being honest.
1: Yeah, straight up, just like absolutely dull hand pointing upward. Real nasty stuff, but oh, it's not like how Homeboy has to stab himself in the back with like a Macbeth dagger in the locker room. Like, that made me... <laughs> Really uncomfortable to see him just like slide that into his spine. Well, wouldn't you,
0: Seamus, do anything to save your son,
1: young Sheldon? (laughs) Yeah, we finally came back around. What if we just never talked about that kid? (laughs) <laughs> even though i like that kid a lot one of the best parts of the movie i think actually like, he is maybe one of the other parts of the ending that's like he still is like i know that michelle Yeoh was a fake because i actually maybe see stuff yeah he's like
0: the omen or something a little bit i liked he's how also the blackmailer <laughs> that's great I, I love how unsettling he is that was something i was really into about this movie i correctly called that he was the kid from belfast despite not having seen <laughs> belfast because i understand the way that kenneth Branagh works of
1: course of course and i will say he was part of one of maybe my favorite parts of the whole movie the where uh Poirot is losing it in the bathroom and he he keeps having to turn off the faucets I thought that was, like, brilliant psychological, like, what is happening to this man? Like, is he going crazy? Is it ghosts? Like, I truly can't necessarily tell, but it's also in that perfect uh, framing where you don't know if something's going to be, like, behind him in the mirror for real. I I loved (sighs) that part a lot. That...
0: If you want to just look at that in a vacuum and compare that to 90% of horror sequences today and how much more effective he is at building tension towards an anticipated jump scare. Without it feeling cheap, I think that is is really the way to look at it. It's mm-hmm. kind of like that scene in Malignant where James Wan does the, here are 25 places I could put a jump scare <laughs> and I'm not going to do any of them.
1: That, yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to think, I feel like there's more young Sheldon talk to me. Yet. <laughs> well, I will say that it, like the fact that his involvement in the mystery itself, like his personal involvement was yet again one of the famous, like, Pro is going to figure it out and just not tell the audience until he feels like it right at the very end kind of things that we've had a few of in these movies so far. But I was just so charmed by the end of it all where they're all like kind of they're getting into a boat and she's like, well, I'll take care of this boy who has all these millions and we'll take care of these tricksters, these shysters who have been like ripping people off with Michelle Yeoh. We'll send them to st louis and like everything's wrapped up perfectly no one's ever gonna go back into that basement full of corpses and, <laughs> and tina fey is like just like her worst comeuppance was like her ql was like i'm not your friend anymore and she's, I mean, like, that broke my heart because she, she was, I thought, it going to be a real one. But, you know, it, it was such a weird little ending. And then going up to those sweeping rooftop Venice shots where he's, like, back in the game like John Wick. I i, I don't know. I really liked it. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking I'm, I'm back. I, I am sinking. that I am back. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. And then, he, and then he, mustache to camera, says that. That's, like, the—that's the trailer <laughs> line for the fourth one. Where instead of, I'm quite possibly the greatest detective in the world, it is, I'm thinking I am back. I'm going
0: to back up to something that you said a little bit earlier. Of I'm going to defend this movie for I don't think it really the most it ever does the Poirot knows stuff that you could never know and solves the mystery that way is when he figures out that Tina Fey is back. Yes,
1: that is well, yes. I, Because it's Tina Fey and his cool Italian bodyguard guy who are working in cahoots who, ah, I looked up who that guy was and what he was in. John Wick 2. John Wick 2, right, yep. We. You he's are- the guy that makes John Wick do the thing that he's doesn't want to do. He's like, oh, John Wick, I have a weird coin. <laughs> <laughs> Your thumbprint is here. Oh, I wish that was the whole movie. I wish that was the whole Haunting in Venice, but there's a surprising Dude, lack Wick... of Italian people in Haunting in Venice. Uh, there, is, there is a surprising lack of Italian people. Well, we, I would like, before we wrap up this main segment here, I would like to say that I I did call that it was the honey. The whole mystery boils down to the poison honey that is like hallucinogenic and makes you freak out and i called that because i've had that honey before garrett i've had the weird trippy uh from nepal like hallucination honey before you did uh, not tell me that when i did not the tell shows. you that i did not it, it's it's weird i didn't see any like horrific imagery or whatever i didn't like have a halloween vibe when i did it but i had a friend who went to nepal and like went to the one place where that happens naturally we brought mm-hmm. back a little jar, and we we each had a little spoonful, like it was that one episode of Futurama, and it was it was very interesting,
0: fascinating. I'm
1: fascinated by that. It, Seamus. it was it was it tasted weird, but it was one of the most interesting things I've ever eaten. Uh, it just kind of makes you feel drunk. I I don't know how much Poirot had if he was like flipping out like he was, but <laughs> like straight up having conversations with that scary little girl and Tina I Bam really I really thought there was gonna be
0: a non-hallucination explanation for the little girl
1: me too dude because it seemed like and i mean maybe that's more of an interesting thing because in that moment he was like kind of walking himself through the idea of like you were here with the other children you got lost and you're scared to come out because of what's happening like he it was like his own brain fighting against the hallucination of a scary horror movie little girl and i Mm -hmm. i I actually very much like that
0: Well, because I also thought the person who catches him talking to nobody is Tina Fey, who, of course, I mean, I guess she does poison him, but moreover is revealed to be deceiving him the whole time. So I was like, oh, does she have, like, you know, a little girl that she's squirreling away in the
1: walls? (laughs) She kidnapped one of the orphans before the party was over? There were a couple kids in in that first child orphan group that I was like, they kind of they highlighted them longer than some of the other ones, and I was like, oh, this is going to definitely play a role in stuff, and it, it just really never did.
0: Other than, you know, young Sheldon reading his Edgar Allan Poe. Uh,
1: I, the, the Dickens. He's like, I don't like Dickens.
0: I was about to say, I love the Dickens callback. I think that that is a great little <laughs> thing. Because these movies are really good at
1: being sequels to each other, which is really yes. weird because there's only one guy that's in all three of them. Maybe that's why I'm so impressed by this franchise right now is because it's like i always feel like franchises nowadays there's such a there's so much labor that goes into just like we want we need to make a sequel we need to make it so obvious that it's a sequel these are kind of seamless even if they do roll back some of the transitions between movies to like include time jumps in a few places but they've been consistent they've been consistently getting better i i just i'm so charmed by how much I love the Poirot-verse, and how much I love him as Poirot. Well,
0: I love, I think there's so much labor is a really good way to put it, because they're only there to catch if you care to catch them. It's Mm -hmm. very natural, subtle writing. Not that it's, like, subtle to be like, I hate Dickens, (laughs) da-da-da-da-da, but... You but know, like... if, you don't rem- if you saw Murder on the Orient Express when it came out, you vaguely remember it like most of the old people that were in our screening did. Which, by the way, we were not alone in the IMAX theater. There was a decent turnout. Not a great turnout for opening night, but you know, <laughs> you <laughs> it was know. fine. If they probably don't remember that Poirot likes to giggle at Charles Dickens, that <laughs> is still a fine exchange in the movie. They're not going to be confused. They're not going to be missing anything character-wise. It's just a nice consistency that shows the writers are paying attention to the characters that they care about. And I have got to say, of all the Poirots that I have seen, this is definitively my favorite interpretation of this character. I think that, I said this a little bit last time, but Branagh has made him so likable and endearing and quirky in in an annoying way, but not in a way that is off-putting. And like you, I would watch a million more of these.
1: Every time he measures an egg, I'm gonna I'm gonna be like, Yeah, man, I, I was there, I know I know his deal. You were at the wailing wall. <laughs> yeah, that's such a loaded way to say I'm a fan of the Kenneth brand movie. <laughs> 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 I was there at the whaling wall. <laughs> oh, that's too intense. That's too intense.
0: Uh, oh well, but... why don't we go ahead and stick in the Mediterranean as we explore Venice. Let's do it. We aren't really exploring Venice, I guess, but you know.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a lot of Venice, if I'm being honest. It's mostly Venice and Rome. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about recent increases in Italian film production. In the last few years, local and international film production in Italy has increased significantly, largely due to the country's 40% tax rebate for film productions. Italian domestic filmmaking has increased to a peak of over 250 films per year, which many experts believe is an unsustainable rate for the film market of Italy's size.
0: A panel of Italian film producers have pointed to the current Hollywood strikes and publicly advocated for the change of distribution regulations in the event that the prolonged absence of new American media creates a vacuum in the film market. In recent years, major American film titles not only take place all around Italy, but actually shot on location there, including films like Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Fast X, A Haunting in Venice, The Equalizer 3, and Indiana Jones and the
1: Dial of Destiny. I uh, don't really understand it. It's like, I'm naturally super hyped now when I see that a movie is like, oh, they're going to Italy? Like, let's go! Let's go to Italy! I kinda, I'm loving how much is taking place there right now, and, I mean, maybe it's because I've been to a few of those places now, and I'm just like, I... I was walking right where Ethan Hunt is sprinting his life away. But, like, I I don't know. I think it looks beautiful when they actually get to shoot in these cities. And it's been a lot of fun seeing how rapidly it's been happening in a lot of stuff that we actually care about. I think the fact that you got really... Not, I'm not going to say lucky, but
0: it really worked out <laughs> for lucky, you yeah. that your Italy trip coincided with, hey, why don't we make all of our movies in Italy this year? It's that kind of, <laughs> when... I had just gotten back from my study abroad program in Europe when Spider-Man Far From Home came out. And that's definitely part of the reason that back when that movie came out, I was like, that's a pretty good movie. movie."
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, dude, it's super influential on my opinions of all these movies that are like, I'm so angry at Dante and Fast X because he's ruining the streets of Rome. Oh, God. Oh.
0: So well, tragic.
1: Seamus, to be fair, all of these are great movies
0: and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny.
1: <laughs> oh, no, don't do it. Don't do it <laughs> to him, Garrett. Come on. I mean, no. there's, it's, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, all of these are great movies except Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I we haven't seen the Equalizer 3, but seeing the trailers for, like, it's it's truly, he's it's. I guess the Equalizer was John Wick first anyway, but it's like he's trying to retire in a sleepy Italian village. He has to just go against the Italian mob in Italy.
0: I, I have never seen an Equalizer movie, period. I will say... Along with the Killers of the Flower Moon trailer, the Equalizer three trailer is one of my favorite movies to come out.
1: <laughs> dude, dude, we gotta we gotta round up because I've never seen the second Equalizer, and I'm hyped to go to Italy with the. I don't even remember his name in those movies. Of a Denzel equalizer. Washington. Well, I mean, in the movies, you I guess Denzel you just call Washington him Denzel Washington in anything he's in. But and I mean, granted, John Wick two was already in Rome, but now we have the Equalizer and John Wick are both in Italy. Maybe they'll meet up. Who knows?
0: I am ashamed to admit that I would be <laughs> so psyched about
1: that. You can't tell me that if you had the choice between that movie and Expendables 4, you wouldn't pick the other one.
0: Oh, man. Well. <laughs> it's the same I, vibe.
1: You know, it really is the same vibe then again if Denzel and John Wick why am I not saying Keanu Reeves no
0: John Wick should they just they should just put John Wick in the expense. you're right about that I think that's
1: true I think that's true
0: but why don't we go ahead and move on over and save the old rec center before Denzel and Keanu destroy (laughs) it in their
1: collateral damage let's do it save the rec center
0: Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly rec. <laughs> amendations. <laughs> so us long. what do you got this week?
1: Oh, because it's getting longer. Well, my rec center this week, I have had the absolute joy and pleasure of watching the Royal Warriors in the line of duty franchise with you the first four in the line of duty films but i want to highlight specifically in true seamus Connolly fashion probably the worst one of the four <laughs> in the line of duty three aka royal big sister three colon the male and female thieves it is so unhinged and in a franchise of nothing but unhinged incredible 80s hong kong action it, sadly it is the first one without michelle yo but Cynthia Khan really steps up and it is so weird it's so funny and strange and maybe i hate to say it maybe the best soundtrack of the four there's some really really tight 80s like synth pop music that they <laughs> that they get into in this one that I, that really tickles me it's far from the best one it, but it is so memorable to me just because it's such a departure from a lot of what the staples of this franchise seem to be. Uh, but i hi- I highly recommend all of them but this one is is the red-headed stepchild of them all and I love it forever.
0: I think in line of duty three is still pretty baller. I would actually probably this is gonna sound embarrassing because you know how I love Michelle Yo. <laughs> I think I would probably re-watch it before I'd re-watch Yes, Madam, which is wow. two
1: or one, depending on how you count. <laughs> All right, right. Uh, Royal Big Sister 2, colon, Yes, Madam. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually real but I mean they're all so good but this one is just like such a such a freaky little twist on on the other ones I I would like to maybe watch it again with you cuz we watched this one separately I think and it would be it would be a riot to watch together.
0: I agree. Yeah, I love the Royal Warriors films. I think, um, I think it's interesting, well, one, that we both clung to the Royal Warriors, so now we call them that, even though they are the In the Line of Duty films. <laughs> of course, we're purists. Which is interesting, because In the Line of Duty is the old title for Royal Warriors. <laughs> it's a Someday that'll be our pop culture reference when we become a oh, Hong Kong cast.
1: Yes. Dude, that would be endless fun, truly.
0: But I believe that a couple of them are maybe still streaming on Criterion Channel in the leftovers of the Michelle Yeoh Kicks Ass Collection. <laughs> Which was a fantastic collection on the Criteria channel and how I first discovered this great franchise and I'm so glad that you were able to hop on board with me and that we were able to see it out together for in the line of duty 4 I I think that they are bangers through and through and I agree that Cynthia Khan is a is a worthy Replacement for mm-hmm. Michelle Yeoh. I wouldn't necessarily sh- say that she fills the shoes, but she's she's funny and a badass, and she could she could get a little bit more to do in the movies, but it's still a great time. But what do you have
1: to save the rec
0: center this week, Garrett? What if a movie were completely the opposite of In Line of Duty 3, I guess? <laughs> what is this? Slow cinema, prolific filmmaker Kelly Reichert has come out with her new film. She actually came out with it, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, but I was finally able to see it in Milwaukee. It's actually been available to rent online for a while, but I waited to see it at the UWM Union Cinema, who was the first theater to program it in Milwaukee, showing up starring Michelle Williams, John Magaro, and Hong Chow, and I was a big, big fan of this one. I don't think it's First Cow, you know, First Cow is a pretty great film. I don't think it's necessarily her best work, but I do think that it's a very strong piece and very unlike a lot of other kelly reichert work that i have seen previously it also has three actors that i love to see in Mm -hmm. anything they show up in uh john magaro of course who we famously love from uh, as being the new york guy from overlord (laughs) hell yeah i love that guy and he's been doing some really great dramatic work lately that has been blowing me away he was also the lead in first cow and he is one of the featured players in showing up which is about the portland arts community and how weird it is that the intersection of art and commerce and that the community that you're living in where there is mm. inherent inequity is also the artistic community that you're working in it was a fascinating film and i'm a big Riker guy i don't think i bring her up a lot on the show but she's probably my favorite working director that's not named martin scorsese so
1: (laughs) i i need to see more kelly reichert because i am a fan from the the little that i've seen but you you've talked this movie up to me personally i think and i i would definitely go search a lot more of her work out especially because she finds actors that she can absolutely work so well with and she kind of sticks with them for different projects and i obviously i love when a director can do that but she does it so well through her films i'm I'm definitely gonna seek this out
0: well it's streaming right now you can rent it for five dollars and i'm sure it will be on it's an a24 film so i I, it it will be on showtime or stars or amazon Hmm. prime something soon enough. And backdoor rec center, if you're looking to to kind of test out Reichert's filmography, I believe that First Cow is streaming on Amazon Prime if you have a subscription to that. So that's one of her more recent films. She's been getting a lot more high profile lately. Obviously, working with a distributor that has a cult following like A24 is probably helpful in that regard. Go check it out. Like, you will not, no matter where you enter, her filmography will not be led astray.
1: But with that, I think that wraps us up for the show this week. If you want to reach us, you can hit us up on social media at PCR underscore podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. Interact with us any way you can like subscribe, do all the things give us a comment send us an email at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com for any direct messages. For next week things are a little bit up in the air travel plans, new jobs things are things are going a little haywire on our end but we are going to be covering either the expendables for or the creator. Two movies that are weird to say in the same sentence even, but um, whatever it's going to be, we're highly anticipating either one. So tune in next week to join us for those. I can't
0: wait, personally, Seamus, so. Either way,
1: it's going to be really interesting and fun in pr- very different ways, but it's it's going to be great. Well, everybody, we will see you next week for whatever it is we end up doing. Adios, amigos.